Well, good evening. Welcome. Glad you guys are here for a study of the book of Romans. Actually, in four weeks, we're not going to study all of Romans. We're going to study the first part, the part uh, that I think you're really going to like this because it's Paul's presentation of the gospel. And I'll just tell you up front, if Paul were applying to be a preacher at a church in America today and he preached this sermon in Romans, they wouldn't hire him. And so I think it's really interesting to, to look at that a little bit. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So I'm, uh, as many of you bring your Bible, you're going to want to make some notes in the margin, I hope, and we'll underline a few things, and we'll just kind of break it down and uh, see if we can't make that come alive a little bit. So this is called The Message That Transformed the World. And trust me, by the end of the night tonight, you're going to wonder, how in the world did this transform the world? Uh, because what, the way Paul approaches this is a little different than you've probably heard before. And I suspect there'll be a few things, and hopefully I'll anticipate your questions, because I think Paul anticipated a lot of questions, but if you have questions during class, just text them to this number. And uh, Laura, who, uh, I had a hard time getting her to come do questions tonight. Uh, two reasons for that. One, we don't pay or anything, so I mean, that, I guess that could have something to do with it. And the other is, it's our anniversary, and this is what we're doing instead of me taking her out. So, thank you, Laura. But she said I do have to take her out at some point, so. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about Paul, and just a, a little introduction to this book of Rome. It's a letter. It's a letter that was written to the churches in the city of Rome, and it's written by Paul. Paul was born, good Jewish boy, his name was Saul. Saul's a good Jewish name, first king of the Jews is King Saul, and so that's what he was named. Think of it as being named like George, after George Washington. That's what he was named. He was a Pharisee, one of the strictest sects of the Jews, and strictest meaning he was very observant. In other words, he followed the law pretty meticulously. And so he was raised in a very conservative household. He was unusual, though, in that he was also a Roman citizen. And that's, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. That was a big deal back then because uh, not that many people were Roman citizens and had the rights of citizens. But Paul did. And that happened occasionally to groups of people. Some people would buy their citizenship, some would be granted it, but it really wasn't very widespread. But Paul was, and his Roman name was Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, Paulus. That's a good Latin name, and that's how we come to know him as Paul. In fact, in the book of Acts, where you'll read about the history of the early church, and of course Paul's there, he's called Saul for quite a while, and then when they begin to travel, and they go into Roman areas, he uses his Latin name, Paul. So when they, people hear it, they would know, oh, he's, he's not Roman, but he's got a Roman name. He may be a Roman citizen. And so it was advantageous for him, and so he did. Well, he, if you remember, was persecuting the church. He was going around, he was very zealous, and he would trap Christians into saying something blasphemous, like Jesus is the Son of God. They'd throw him in jail. They might stone them. And he said that he was trying to destroy the church. And you may remember, he's on the road to Damascus, Syria, a city that's still there today, when he has this encounter with Jesus Christ, and it changes his life. You know, it's one of those uh-oh moments, you know, when Jesus says, hey, I'm the guy that you're persecuting. Do you want to talk? And he's like, whoa, not good, right? And so he believes in Christ, and he has this encounter, and it completely changes his life. And in fact, 
you can really ask the question, can anybody really have an encounter with Jesus Christ and it doesn't change our lives? And Paul writes like the answer to that question is no. You and I can't have a genuine encounter with Christ and it not change our life. Well, it certainly changed his because he then began to, he just took off and starts going around telling this good news about Jesus Christ and he does these missionary journeys. But they weren't missionary journeys like you and I think of. You know, got a tour company and there's a you know, tour bus waiting and we planned out the itinerary. He just takes off. You know, got a couple of helpers, takes off, comes to town and begins to preach. So that's what Paul was doing. And he comes to the town of Corinth, which is a major city in Greece, and he stays there for quite a while. And while he's there, this is 57 AD, so the book of Romans, probably written while he's in Corinth in about 57 AD. And so he hears about that there's this thriving church in Rome, and it's made up of Jewish Christians, and when I say that, what I mean is Christians who were raised Jewish, and Gentile Christians. And what I mean when I say that is Christians who were brought up as not Jews, as one of the various pagan religions. So all these Christians together, some of them used to be Jews, some used to be Christians, he hears about it. He's never been there to meet this church. But he decides, hey, this is great news, I'm hearing good things about them, I'll write them a letter, and that's what this is. It's the letter that he wrote. At the end of the book of Romans, we're just going to go there for just a second, in chapter 15, he tells you what his plans are. He says, there's no more place for me to work in this region around Corinth. And sure enough, if you read the book to the letters to the Corinthians, the church is there, read the book of Acts. He has just, I mean, the gospel has just consumed that place. And he says, I've been longing for a long time to come see you, so I'm going to do that. He said, I'm headed for Spain because nobody's taken the gospel to Spain. I'm headed that way. I'll stop by Rome sort of like a layover, you know, a major uh, hub, airport hub. So when I fly through to Spain, he says, I'll stop there in Rome, right? And I hope to visit you while passing through. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to take a gift to the saints, and the word saints just means Christians, to the Christians there, because there were famines and droughts in that part of the area. He said, so when he would go around the churches, he'd say, hey, let's help our fellow Christians in Jerusalem and Judea and he'd take up money, and then he's headed there. So he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to give them the gifts you guys have uh, sent to them. Then I'm going to come see you, and I'm going to go to Spain. Well, it doesn't work out exactly like he plans. He does go to Jerusalem, but if you read the book of Acts, while he's in Jerusalem preaching, the Jews who've been trying to kill him everywhere he goes get a hold of him, and he gets arrested, and they get him in prison, and he ends up going to Rome several years later as a prisoner not uh, as a free man. And so it's kind of interesting sometimes when you think about it, how often uh, our plans come true, but n not in the way that we intended. And that's what happened to Paul. So he's writing this letter with great intentions, but he's not gonna see them until he arrives in chains as a Roman prisoner a few years later. So that's kind of the background of this letter that he's writing to Rome. And he's writing it, and he's going to, since he hasn't been there, instead of preaching the gospel, he sort of wrote down a sermon. In other words, this is what he might say if he were there preaching to them. And uh, he covers a lot of territory. This might be longer than one sermon, but he just takes off and he starts with the theme of the book 
And if you've got your Bible, you can underline this passage in your Bible. This is the theme of the book, and he gets it out front really early. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this tells you, here's why he's writing. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew and for the Gentile, not just the Jewish people, it's for everyone. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is being revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, that is completely by faith. That's the theme of the book. He says, I want to talk to you about this gospel that's being revealed, and it's for everyone who believes, and it is completely by faith from first to last. That's the central thing that Paul preached everywhere. And so it's like a preacher coming up and saying, today I'm going to talk to you about this. And then he begins the sermon. That's what Paul's doing. Verses 16 and 17 are the essence of what he's going to talk about. Well, there are a lot of religious terms, and one thing I want to do is none of the words in this book are religious words. They have become religious words, but the Greek of the book of Romans is just like the typical English you and I would speak today. It's the, those words were used by everybody. We tend to read the word gospel, for example, and say, oh, that's a Christian word. No. At that time, that's not even slightly a Christian word. In fact, let's talk about a couple of these terms. The word gospel, or we translate it gospel, just means good news. You see this all over secular Greek writing. You read other letters, people writing letters at the time, and they say, hey, I got good news. This is the word that they would use. So they, they didn't hear it as, oh, the gospel, yeah, I know that. I heard that in children's Sunday school. They heard it as, oh, he's got a good story to tell us. He's got some, some positive news to tell us. That's what the word gospel means. It's just a good message, right? It's good news. The second word, very religious word today, not even slightly religious word then, is righteous or justified or righteousness, or justification. Two things to say about that. First, in Greek, those are the same word. So if you've ever wondered, what is the difference between righteousness and justification? Nothing. I mean, it's the same word in Greek. We translate it a little, uh, just in different words in different contexts. But it's the same word, it's the same idea. And all it really means is being right being in a correct relationship. In a Christian sense, it means righteousness with God, being in a right condition with God. But this word's used all over the secular writings too. And it's used in two different ways, and Paul means it in both of the ways. And we still use it that way today, as a matter of fact. We talk about being uh, righteous or being right or in a right condition in two senses. One is a judicial sense. You can be righteous or just, meaning there are no warrants out for your arrest. In other words, you are right with the government because your taxes are paid and there are no warrants to arrest you. In fact, uh, when I was uh, with Leadership Oklahoma City, we did a ride along with an Oklahoma City police officer and when I was with him, we pulled a guy over pulled him over for some minor traffic thing. And so you know what they do, they run your plates before they get out and come see you. And this guy, I'm sitting there looking at the screen and it just starts scrolling. 
I mean, it's, and I'm thinking, this is not your normal traffic stop, you know? So he slaps the gun on, gets out, and goes, you stay here, you know? And so he goes up to the car. A few minutes, he comes back with the guy. Guy's in the back. I'm like, hey, good to see you. You know, he's sitting in the back of the deal, and it turns out he's not righteous, meaning he's got a long list of warrants. And so I got to go see the county jail. So we went on down and, you know, got to go do that during that trip. Well, that's... That's this sense. If you're righteous, it means you're, you're okay with legally, you're fine, right? Same idea. Righteous with God means, well, God's got nothing against me. You know, there are no warrants out for my arrest. But it also means being right, right, relationship is also a relational term. And Paul's going to use it both ways. He's going to talk about righteousness as a kind of a legal relationship. And he's going to talk about righteousness as a personal relationship. You can be right or just, or here's the way I like to think of it is things are right. I used to travel a lot uh, when I was at AT&T, had clients on both coasts, and so I'd get on planes a lot of times on Mondays, come back on Fridays, and I tell you, I always hated leaving my family, getting on the plane, I always was excited to get home, but there, I don't know if you guys have ever felt this before, uh, and probably all of you have, but maybe especially you guys can identify with this the worst times I ever got on an airplane. I always felt sad when I'd sit in that seat. I wasn't afraid of flying or anything. I just felt sad because I'm leaving my family. But if I didn't feel like we were right, do you know what I'm saying? If, you know, Laura had done something wrong, so I was mad. No, I just, actually, that isn't the way that usually worked, you know. But do you know what I'm saying? When things just aren't quite right between you, I had a really, really bad feeling. There's just something really worse. It's like, I need to make this right. I cannot wait to get home so we can be reconciled. Well, this word righteous, I mean, it sounds real religious, but that's all it means. It means being right with God in a legal sense. You know, I don't owe him anything, or I haven't transgressed the law, so to speak. But also relationally, that we're reconciled. We have peace with each other. So that's what that word means. And then finally, the word faith. Again, we use the word faith and the word belief, and you'll see it in your translations. It's the same Greek word. It, it, there's no difference in those two words. And I'll tell you the best way to translate that, in my opinion, the best English word to give you the flavor of that is the word trust. Because we think of belief as an intellectual state of mind, and we think of faith as somehow putting your hope in something, but we think of trust as actually relying on something. That's a better that better captures the meaning of the word. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, now that we've got some terms out of the way, I want you to read that again. He says, look, I'm not ashamed of the good news I'm about to tell you because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, everyone who trusts, for the Jew and the Gentile. For in this good news, there's a way to be right with God that is completely related to trust. That's the message of the gospel. That's what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about a way to be right with God that completely relies on trust, not on effort. Ooh, Paul, you've got my attention now. This is really, this is a powerful thing. I'd kind of like to know how to be right. Maybe I've got a few warrants out for my arrest. You know, I've transgressed and I know I've sinned or transgressed. So, Paul, you've got my attention. I'd like to know what this good news is. Well, let me tell you, the next verse says this. Well, he says, let me tell you this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of you, you guys, of all the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
This is why he doesn't get hired, you know. Up to now, pretty good job preaching, but sorry about that. The first thing he wants to talk about is God is angry. Now, I'm not talking about angry in the sense of rage, I lost my temper kind of a rage. That's not what this word means. This word is more of a righteous anger. You felt it. There are things that make you angry, justifiably angry. In other words, matter of fact, pick up the newspaper or watch the TV, unfortunately, and you see unjust things all the time. And you can get really justifiably angry. I mean, you see children being treated in ways that just, is just so wrong. It's so not right. And you can just become furiously angry. Not fly off the handle, I can't control myself, but just that deep, just anger over the wrongness of this. Children should not be abused like that. People should not be brutalized like they are. I mean, you've, you've seen the headlines. You understand what I'm talking about. That's what this word is. It says, basically, God has that feeling about the not rightness. In other words, we're not right. We're not righteous with God. In fact, take that feeling and multiply it by about infinity because he created this place and you and I are trashing it. Anybody who has teenagers and you let them borrow your car for a road trip, you know what I mean about wrath. Comes back and you go, where did all this stuff come from? You know, you trashed my car. Well, God looks at us and says, this is so wrong. I didn't create you to treat each other like this. I didn't create you to ignore me. In other words, this idea of the godlessness, in other words, the lack of respect to God, and then wickedness, that word literally means unrighteousness, unjustness, in other words, how we treat each other. And so Paul begins the story of this good news. So I got some good news for you. God's angry. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, I've never heard the gospel presented like that. You know how you, we usually hear the gospel presented? God loves you. Well, that's true, but you won't hear that till chapter 5. Paul says, we've got to get some things square. I want you to understand, God's angry. And he's justifiably angry. And you and I have a problem because when we got pulled over, the warrants started rolling. You know, Think of the script of your and my life and the unkind, unjust, wrong things we have done. Well, he's talking to humanity in general, but that's how he starts. He says, we've abused each other, we betrayed each other, and there's just a wrongness about the way we are living, and God's angry about that. Well, you have my attention. But Paul says, but I know that you guys are going to want to argue about that. And so the rest of chapters 1 through 3, Paul is like he's in a courtroom, and he's going to answer some objections. And the first objection, which you and I have probably had too, is, well, wait a minute. God's angry, and I admit, pick up the newspaper, I'm not proud uh, you know, of humanity in general, you don't have to look very far to say, well, you've got a point, but what about people who've never heard the gospel? Have you ever heard this objection before? You've probably thought about that. It's like, well, now wait just a minute, God. You can't be angry at everybody. What about the people who've never heard the gospel? What about people that don't know about Jesus Christ? Paul says, let's talk about that. That's the next verse. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because 
God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that people are without excuse. He makes a very interesting argument here. He doesn't say everybody in the world knows who Jesus Christ is. That's not his point. He just says, you know what? Every one of us can look around and realize something, something, is going on here. Something bigger than me is happening here. Even the most die-hard, random, there's no God evolutionists talk like this place was designed because it obviously was. And so Paul's contention is, is that you can look around and you gotta know something's going on here. And what did people do with that? He says, although they knew something about God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but instead their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkness. Even though we thought we were wise, in other words, we think we're the pinnacle of creation. We didn't create it, but we think we're the most special things here, right? We became fools, and we made an exchange. And you're going to see this word exchanged over and over in chapter 1. If, as you read through, you ought to just underline everywhere you see exchanged. And it's a theme. He says, you know, we traded what we could see something, but we decided, no, you know what? Instead, I'm going to worship images made to look like me and birds and animals, etc. What is that saying? He said, even though I know I didn't create this place, something greater than me did, who did we worship? Me. He says, so you may not know about Jesus Christ, but he says, I'm not letting you off the hook that easily. He said, you look around at what happened, and sure enough, we have rejected God. And here's the argument that you, ha that you have to make. If you want to talk about people who don't know God, here he's not saying, well, you don't know Jesus. He's saying, you don't even respect what you do know. And instead, you begin to go worship all kinds of things that we create, that we make up. We worship ourselves. And so when you pick up that newspaper and you say, well, here's something really bad that happened. But it happened over in deepest, darkest, fill in the blank. When I was growing up, it was somewhere in the outback of Australia. Somebody hadn't heard the gospel, so we would use that as an example. But wherever it may be, well, bad things are happening there, but you know what? They never heard of Jesus. What are you really saying? Paul says you've got to be arguing one of two things. You've got to be either arguing that, well, what they did really wasn't bad. That's a loser of an argument, okay? Or you have to argue, yeah, what they're doing is really bad, but you can't hold them responsible because they didn't know. Does that make sense? How well, okay, let's take this out of the realm of God and let's just bring it down to you and me. How well does that work in our legal system? Well, it doesn't work at all, does it? Well, you killed so-and-so, so we're going to put you in jail because you should have known better. But you know what? Little Jimmy over here, he didn't grow up knowing better. As a matter of fact, Actually, where I grew up, I grew up close to where the Hatfields and McCoys did their thing. And so in that part of the world, it was like, if somebody did something to your family, you do something worse to their family, right? In that part of the world, legitimately, if somebody hurt your family, it was perfectly righteous for you to go do something worse to them. It was the idea of a feud. Does our legal system say that's okay? Well, hey, he was brought up thinking it was okay. So yeah, if you kill them, we're going to let you go. Of course not. Even, even our justice system doesn't allow that because even our justice system, as secular as it is, knows this, that even 
the person who knows nothing realizes, you know, just as a basic human trait, I don't think I'd want somebody to kill me. Maybe I shouldn't kill other people. In other words, we're going to hold people responsible, whether they know our laws or not, for some level. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's arguing. He says, you know what? You may not have read the New Testament. You may not have heard a sermon that I've given you, but there's something inside you that you know something. And his point is, you haven't done it. Look how he goes on. I'm just going to read a few things to you. And here's another theme, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship created things. He said, in other words, you rebelled, let's see how that works out for you. He said, go with it. And you know what you see in the newspapers and what you watch on TV is the result of this. God said, you want to have it your way? Have it your way and let's see how it works out. Again, verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Uh, verse 28. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. And listen to this judgment. Verse 29. They have become, this could describe our world today, they have become filled with every kind of evil, or greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters. They're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful. They disobey their parents, they're senseless, they're faithless, they're heartless, they're ruthless. In other words, Paul's argument is, even if you say people haven't heard, he says, I'll tell you what, we won't judge them by the gospel. He says, even if we were going to judge you by what you did know, we failed. Does that make sense? It's a very interesting argument that he makes. I'm not telling you that people aren't accountable to a higher degree, but Paul's argument is, you know what, look around. We don't even do the things that we know. So don't argue about what we don't know. And I think his argument here is we aren't judged for rejecting a Christ we don't know. Paul says we stand condemned for rejecting what we do know. He says, we'll lower the standard as low as you want to go. And we still don't do it. Does that make sense? So his point is, is he's trying to justify the idea that God is, is right to be angry. We have done something that puts us in a very wrong relationship with him. And part of it is, forget the, the New Testament for a minute, we haven't even done what's written into our hearts as human beings. We can't even live up to that. And this wrongness results in God's wrath. He looks at that like you and I read the paper about child abuse and just is this, is, this is wrong. This is not the way this should be. That's exactly what God sees when he looks at us. He says, it doesn't matter how much you know. You know this is wrong. You know in your heart that this is wrong, no matter what else you may know. And that's, God, that's his argument. But then he goes on, though, and he says, but I realize you're going to say, but wait a minute, not everybody acts like that. Not everybody's abusing children or uh, hacking people's arms off or blowing people up, you know, or blowing up school buses or good heavens, all the things that happen. Not everybody's doing that. What about good people? Not the bad people. We're with you on that, Paul. God should be mad at them, but he shouldn't be mad at us good people. We have morals. We have ethics. Paul says, really? Let's talk about that. 
And that's the second section. So our first section started in verse 19, and he's talking about what about people that don't know God. This next section starts in chapter 2, and he's talking about good people. And here's how he opens it up. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. He's talking now about people who have code of conduct. And we're going to stand with Paul and go, yeah, those people, very bad. They don't meet my standard of conduct. They don't meet my morals or my ethics. I'm a good person, so surely you can't be talking about me. He says, you know what? Whatever point you judge someone else, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, God actually sees the truth of the situation, sees into our heart. So when you pass judgment on them but do the same things, do you really think that you can escape God's wrath? In other words, that you're going to be justified by this? Here's his contention. Even if we think we're good people or we have morals or we don't act like that, his contention is, is that we don't even follow our own morality. Now that is a bold claim. But if you stop and think about it, there's no one who can stand that scrutiny. By the way, this is what Jesus meant when he was talking in Matthew 7, one of the most misused and abused verses in the Bible. Judge not so that you won't be judged. Most people think, oh, well that means Jesus said you can't tell anybody uh, what they're doing is wrong. No. He's talking about this. He said, listen, whatever your standard of conduct is and you want to apply that to everybody else, said, you better be careful, because you know what? We'll just judge you with your same measure. Meaning, the same thing Paul's saying, we don't even live up to our own morality. We are very inconsistent. And if you stop and think about it, because you're all good people, actually, we all fall probably in the next category. We're even better than that. But the point is, we've kind of got our morality, right? And we go, well, at least I have morals. I'm not hacking people's arms off. I'm not out abusing children. I'm not you know, doing this. Like, well, I'll tell you what. We'll just judge you by your own moral standards. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I go, let me just back off that a little bit, you know? Because the truth is, I don't even live up to my own moral standard. We are inconsistent, even by our own standards. But here's, here's where I would retreat to. You know, when Paul says, hey, you don't even follow your own, I go, okay, you might be right about that, but I'll tell you what, though, I act better than some of the Christians. And I've heard that a million times. My friends who aren't Christians like, hey, I know that your God's angry, and I know that you think that he has a right to be angry and judge me, but he can't judge me till he judges the least good Christian. And I don't know who that is in our congregation, but I like, it might be me. You know, and that's what I'm worried about is, who's everybody benchmarking against? You know, all my friends out there are like, well, I think we're okay because we're better than Terry, all right? And he's a Christian. You know, so sometimes we want to say, well, we're at least better than somebody else. And you know what? That's pretty much beside the point, and even we know that's beside the point, because if Christianity said you have to act this good to get in, then my friends that aren't Christians might have an argument. But it doesn't. Remember what Paul said the gospel, the good news was? There's a way to be right with God that's being revealed, and it's completely by trust. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you probably remember this verse. If not, go underline it. It says this. As Paul writing, he says, For we are saved by grace, by gift, through faith, through trusting God. And that's not ourselves. We didn't do anything to earn that. God did it. Jesus is the one that went to the cross. Not by works, not by behavior, lest anybody could boast before God. So the point is, he says, 
That might be true if my gospel, if my good news was, I can show you how to act good enough. He says, but that's not it. You can't act good enough. That's the whole point. And so he kind of closes that down and he says, listen, it doesn't, doesn't matter. How good you think you act or what your morals are, I'll tell you what, we'll just judge you by your morals. So the people who've never heard of God, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll just judge you by what you did know. And the people who say, I have morals, he said, I'll tell you what, we'll judge you by your own standards. Now, that's far below God's, but he says, we don't even live up to those standards. That makes sense? He's really making a hard-hitting argument here. And sometimes, I know you've probably never thought of this, but when your friends say, well, you know what, I act better than most people, and so... I can't believe your God's going to you know, be angry at me or judge me. You might just say, well, what if he just judged you by your own standards? There's not one of us that can stand the scrutiny. Because you know what our justice looks like? We treat our friends one way and we treat our enemies another. We are inconsistent. I don't know about you, but my moral code is a very strict moral code. And when I apply it to you, there is no grace. But I cut myself all kinds of slack. You know, it's, and that's the way we are, isn't it? And you don't know anyone who even lives up to what they think is right. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, so if you think you haven't heard, I'll just judge you by what you know, and we won't live up to that. You think you're a good person? I'll tell you what, we'll judge you by what you believe, and I don't think you'll live up to that either. Well, he's got a good point, but he hasn't reached me yet, and he hasn't reached you because you know what? We're religious we do know God. We do know who he is. And so, third, what about the people who do believe in God? How can there be any anger toward us? We're Christians. We come to church three times a month, you know. When I was, became a Christian, late teens, I, I didn't grow up in the church, but I grew up in a church that had service three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And you know what the big argument was? Now, this is true. I hate to tell you this, but this is actually true. The argument was, do Sunday nights count? And we knew Sunday mornings did, and we knew Wednesdays did, and we knew you had to somehow repent for missing those, but we weren't. We needed a legal ruling on Sunday nights. Okay, we're a long way from that now, aren't we? But my point is, is we think, hey, we do believe in God, so we're not the people over there doing the awful, awful things, and we're not even those people who think they're good by their own standards, but they don't even live up to their own standards. We've got God. And he uses the Jews as an example of that. As a matter of fact, it's chapter 2, verse 17, if you're making notes, is where he's going to turn and he's going to answer the third question. First question, what about people that don't know anything about God? Second question, chapter 2, is what about the people who they have some more morality? They're not total heathens. And then in verse 17, he turns, what about the religious people? And he uses the Jews as an example. And he says this about them. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, meaning if you say, hey, I believe in God, and you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship to God, if you know the, his will and approve of what's superior because you have the law, if you're convinced you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, in other words, we've read the Bible. We know. In fact, we kind of go tell everybody else what they should be doing. He says, if you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Because you who preach against stealing, do you steal? And then he goes on and he says, you know what? The very code that we say we live up to, we don't. 
Remember Jesus, let the one of you who's without sin throw the first stone. His point wasn't that everybody's okay because everybody sins. His point was is everybody's not okay because everybody sins. Do you understand what he's saying there? His point is not, hey, everybody's got sin, so let's cut us all some slack. No, everybody's got sin, and that's why the wrath of God is being revealed against all of us. Even us religious people? Yes, even us religious people. Because we don't hold it. The Jews thought, it's an interesting thing, this is not in the Bible, but this was around before Jesus' time, and this is what Jews believed then, this is what Jews believe today. All Israel has a share in the world to come. This is in the oral uh, oral law, the oral tradition of the Jews. And you know what that means? All Jews go to heaven because they're Jews. That's what that means. In other words, we're religious people, we're Jewish, we've been circumcised, which is the sign at that time, and today too, it's a sign of I'm going to be a child of Abraham and I'm in this covenant relationship with God, so I'm going to heaven. I'm not like the people that don't know. I'm not even like the people with a good moral code. I've got a special relationship. It's sort of like people who have those stickers on their car where I gave to the highway patrol thing type thing. You're still going to get a ticket. All right? But that's kind of what the Jewish people thought. They thought, hey, we're Jews. All Israel has a share in the world to come. And that's what they were taught. And that's what your Jewish friends today who are even remotely observant, this is a teaching. And it's like we're special because we're the Jews. And so we're going to go to heaven. Uh, but here's what the, uh, John the Baptist said. And this is, this is the way Jesus says. You're going to see what Paul says. It's very consistent. John the Baptist said, listen, all you guys coming out, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath? And you see that idea that God is not happy because we are not right with each other. He says, you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you really think you're right with God, then I should be seeing some transformation in your life, and I don't. He says, don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, because that's exactly what they said. We're children of Abraham. We're Jews. Special. We go through without going through the scanner. Ever seen people at the airport? This worries me. Ever seen people, you know, we're all standing in line to go through the metal detector? Ever seen those people that sort of go around? Like, what are you? You know, they got a little ID card. That's what they were thinking. And you know, we think that too sometimes, don't we? Hey, I go to church, member of Crossings. I'm a Christian. Been a Christian since I was little, right? It's kind of like that little card saying, I don't have to go through the metal detector. Well, John the Baptist says, you know what? God can make children of Abraham out of the rocks. He says, that's not the issue. In other words, your status is not what's going to do it. Sometimes we as Christians think, look, I wear a cross necklace. I've got a fish on the back of my car. All right? Now, I'm, I'm being funny. Those things aren't bad things. But my point is, we can kind of slip into this attitude. Like, I know, Paul, why God's angry at the heathens. Because I don't like the way they act either. And I know why he's angry at those smug, moralistic people that think they're better than everybody else. They don't even live up to their own moral standards. He says, but surely we're okay because we're Christians. And what Paul's going to say is the end of chapter 2. Here's how he concludes this section. A man is not a Jew as if he's only one outwardly. And he's using the Jews as an example of people. And what's the sign of being a Jew? Circumcision was the sign of that special covenant, you know? And so he said, circumcision isn't just outward. He said, just because you were circumcised, Paul, me, I'm a Pharisee. I was born in a Jewish family. My grandfather was a Jewish. He says, that's not what it means to be in a right relationship with God. No, a Jew is one if he is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is something done in your heart. In other words, it's a work of God by the Spirit, not by my behavior or a written code or a pedigree that says, yes, you're a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. You see what he's arguing there? He says, you've missed the point. He says, you can't behave well enough. We can't do even the commands in the New Testament. He says, the wrath of God, could, if that's our confidence, then we too are under God's wrath. And so he kind of stops there at the end of these, and this is the gospel, by the way. This is what he's preaching. And you're wondering, is anybody left in the church at this point? Or has everybody wandered out? But his point is, is that, you know, here's the basic status of man. Whether you've heard about God, whether you've got a moral standard, or whether you're a religious person, our basic relationship with God is we deserve God's righteous anger, justifiable anger because of the wrongness. And he lists that in chapter one. You just see the wrong things, and it reads like a, I mean, I'm kidding, it reads like a modern day newspaper. We're no different than we were 2,000 years ago. Make sense? That's how he starts the good news. Questions? Um, I just have one. Is it possible to have faith in myself and faith in God? That's a good, that's a good question. Let's use the word faith in the sense of trust. In other words, I'm putting my trust in me, and I'm putting my trust in God. Well, if you stop and think about that, on the surface, that's problematic, isn't it? Who am I trusting? Who's driving this car? Have you ever, I don't know if you guys, any of you ever flown an airplane, but when I was learning to fly, a small plane, and they've got a left seat and a right seat, the guy flying the plane, the guy's in charge is in the left seat. Others say, everything works the same. You got the same pedals, you got everything. So I'm learning to fly, I'm in the right seat, my instructor's in the left seat. And so we had a little code, and he would say, you have the aircraft, which means I'm flying. And he'll say, I have the air. He made, he made a big deal out of this. I'm like, why are you making a big deal out of this? He said, I will always say to you, I have the aircraft, and that means you should let go of the yoke, and I am now flying the plane. Because it's kind of important to one of us to be flying the plane, right, at any given time, especially at those critical moments where you are near the ground, hopefully in a planned way. So he said, you have the plane or I have the plane. Do you know how hard it is? And a couple of times I would get so absorbed in flying the plane. I mean, I'm about making myself about half airsick, by the way, which I think he got a kick out of. Because they teach you to pass the test, you know, you have to be able to control your altitude. And here's what's really hard. It's not so hard to control your altitude just flying along. Really hard to control your altitude when you turn. I'd turn at first. Man, I'd lose 100, 150 feet. It's like, you, you can't do this. I mean, you've got to learn to do it. Well, here's the problem. When you turn and you lose altitude and you're trying to get it back, this is what your ride looks like. So I'm getting greener and greener over here, you know, and I'm struggling, I'm fighting this airplane. And at one point, he says, I have the airplane. Like, maybe he's getting sick too, I don't know. I don't hear him. And so all of a sudden I realize, this plane is hard to steer. <laughs> I'm going this way, he's probably going the right way, but we're not going the same way, right? And I realize, man, I'm, this plane is going nowhere good. So he says in a really loud voice, I have the airplane. It's like, oh, okay. So then I hear him and I let go because otherwise we're going to crash because you can't have both people steering. I don't know if you've ever done this in your car, but I don't recommend it, you know, with two people trying to steer the car. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but I know it's a sincere and it's a genuine question, but no, you can't put your trust in me and my trust in Christ. 
Now, God is going to work through me. He's going to use my skills and my talents, but I'm going to have to put my trust in one of the other. Someone's flying the airplane and someone's not because if we're both trying to fly the airplane, that just doesn't work. So no, and I think this humanistic idea of I'm going to believe in myself, I think that's true, but only in this small sense. Believe that you are who God says you are. And you know the first thing God says you are is you have a problem. You and I are not in a right relationship. And fortunately, he has the conclusion, but if believe in myself means I'm inherently a good person, I can change the world, I can make it better, God does not agree with that. It is very hard to believe in yourself, have faith in yourself in that sense, and have faith in God. Because he obviously has a different opinion of me than I do. I'd like to think I'm good. If I'm honest, he's right. I'm not. So that's, that's really more of a cultural idea. And there might be a slight sense in which that's true, but not the way you normally hear it. That's a great question. Because what Paul's going to argue is, we all have this problem, and here's how he sums it up at the end of this chapter 3. So we've really gone through three chapters of Romans, but I want to do it in a way that's meaningful to you. Instead of every little verse, he's really arguing three things. He says, God is justifiably angry at the wrongness of your life. And it doesn't matter if you've never heard of him, or you think you're a good person, or even if you think you're a, um, a religious person. He says, our lives are wrong. There's a wrongness. There's a judicial wrongness in that we know we have violated some rules and we deserve punishment. It's kind of like going into the judge. My father-in-law is an attorney. And he's a defense attorney. So everybody he represented was, in this case, probably guilty. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, I'm not. They probably were. But anyway, he said, his point was, he said, you know, I've observed, and this is really very wise. He said, everybody wants justice until they're standing before the judge, and then they want mercy. And my point is, and that's human nature, I don't fault people for that, but his, his point was well made, is that we know we owe, we know we've transgressed it, we just don't want to be held accountable. And Paul says, let's not kid ourselves. God has a right, a right feeling of anger at the wrongness of our lives. And he said, that's where we've got to start. Now, you don't hear many sermons start there, but he says, that's the straight truth. And you know what is amazing to me? Remember what I told you about Corinth? He's preaching this in Corinth, too. Just sweeping. Why does that message, why does that message, and this isn't the whole gospel, this is part one. I mean, we're we going to take a little bit of time to go through it. But why does that prove to be people coming to Christ unbelievably? The reason is because we know it's true. We know, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that's true. I know I don't live up to my own moral code. I know that I don't even always do the things that everybody knows. And I know that I have not been a faithful Christian. In other words, even though I think I have this relationship with God, I know that, you know what, if he examined me, he would find fault with me. And so Paul says the beginning of knowledge is, a, is an actual truth with the Lord. And that's why this spread like wildfire because finally somebody would tell people the truth. Somebody comes to you and says, you may want to hear this, but it won't last very long and say, you're really all very good people and you're just really wonderful and I believe in you and you should believe in yourself and you're going to do wonderful things and you're going to transform the world and there'll no longer be hunger, there'll no longer be child abuse, there'll no longer be the human trafficking, there'll no longer be any of those things. Well, it's been about 2,000 years, how's it going? And the point is, God gave them over and said, if that's what you believe, 
then by all means. And what you see in the papers is the result of that. In other words, he's right, we're wrong. We can't fix this by ourselves. And so he says, all have sinned. All people have transgressed. All people fall short of the glory of God. That's the beginning of the gospel. If we don't understand that, we have no hope of salvation. Now, I know you're realizing, gosh, Terry, is the rest of this series going to be this big a downer? Did I come here for you to insult me? No, we came here for God to tell us the truth about ourselves. Now, you don't need to walk out of here going, oh, I'm a horrible person. We do need to go out of there and go, let's just be honest. When I stand face to face with God, I have to admit that I do fall short. That's the beginning of understanding what the good news is. You've heard of cheap grace, easy grace, uh, easy believism. That is the good news of Jesus Christ without an honest appraisal of where I actually stand with God. Make sense? That'd be like that guy sitting in the back seat. Let's bring this full circle to the guy sitting in the back of the police cruiser. Oh, I didn't tell you the other part. He puts him in the back, and then he gets out. He goes to search the car. You talk about feeling awkward. <laughs> I'm not a police officer. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me like, who, who are you? He used some different words, but you know what I mean. And I'm like, well, that's a good question. What do you want to talk about? Yeah, it'd be like me saying to him at that moment, you know, I know you're really an okay guy. You're a good person. You probably love your dog. You're probably nice to your kids. <laughs> so you've got some arm robberies. Yeah, what's the big deal, you know? You see what I'm saying? That's cheap, isn't it? It's not true. That's why the gospel is so powerful, even when it starts like this. And the basis for a right relationship is the truth. That's true in your marriage, that's true with our friends, it's true with everything. It's, let's just start with the truth. And here's how I usually start. Laura, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Actually, that default is pretty much true most of the time in my life. But you get the idea. Well, next time, he's gonna move on. And we'll actually just barely get to love, but he's got something to say. Because if we look at that in all honesty and say, you know what, we all fall short. My next question is, tell me what I need to do. And the answer to that question for a Christian is radically different than any other religion in the world and anybody you know. What do I need to do to get right in this situation is not what you think it is. But that's what we'll talk about next time in chapters four and five. Thanks, guys. <laughs>